Hello and welcome along to the Unplugged Pod, where each week we explore everything to do with switching off in a world that's always on. I'm David and alongside me is Mr. Unplugged Hector. Uh, today we're joined by Zoe Stones. Zoe is the founder of Amber, which helps companies detect burnout in their employees. She's super smart, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Zoe. Well, first of all, thank you very much for, for coming along today and being part of uh, the Unplugged pod. My it's pleasure. Appreciated. Uh, right, first and foremost, how do you unplug? Love this question. Um, <laughs> it's obviously something that I think quite a lot um, about. Um, I hate to say it, but probably most of the ways that I unplug are very similar to the ways that other people unplug. Um, I absolutely love my sleep. Um, I spent years and years denying that about myself and had like a a 6am alarm clock set for the gym that I unfailingly snoozed about six times. Um, I've given that up. Um, I am really fastidious about notifications, about using my phone. Um, That's something that I think is incredibly important, I think for pretty much everyone, but I've certainly found um, for me. So I have barely any notifications. I have a blocker app on most of my apps during the day for um, all of the kind of rubbish, the, all of the Instagrams, et cetera, of the world. And then in the evening, I don't quite block my work apps, but I certainly try uh, to stay off them um, whenever I can. Then there's more fun stuff. <laughs> We could probably stop the podcast right now. That was a clean sweep of answers. Like, very, very impressive. I think Matthew Walker's got a lot to answer for because he's sort of spawned a generation of sleeper obsessives and, and all that good but stuff. But that, I mean, I read that book and it made me so neural. I slept so much worse after reading <laughs> Really? Yeah, up okay, all night worrying yeah. about your circadian <laughs> rhythm. So. And he's apologised about that, actually. Has he really? Yeah, yeah he's yeah, come yeah. out and been like, I went way too hard, like scaring yeah. everyone that if they got one bad night's sleep they'll end up with Alzheimer's and that kind of thing that makes a lot of sense Ooh. how yeah. how much are you sleeping for nine hour nights <laughs> through your REM this cycles is, and your... this is the one thing I said I shouldn't have answered so I actually I for me to be on absolute top form I need probably eight and a half hours I don't need that every night it's fine if I don't but if I've got a really really big day ahead that's what I need to be on on absolute top form and I'd rather have half an hour less of the day on better form um, than a longer kind of lower quality day is the conclusion I've come to. I think it's such an important point. I hear so much that people don't have enough time to sleep another half an hour, meditate, whatever it is. And it's, you're literally ruining for a lot of people the the 16 hours because you don't want to take an extra hour in the morning to exercise or whatever it might be. Yeah. And I think for most of us, it's more about energy than time actually. Um, we tend to run out of energy before we run out of time in a day. So take that extra half an hour if you can. And what about the fun stuff? Yeah, um, well, fun unplug stuff. Um, I have a little spaniel that is incredibly <laughs> good at uh, making me just forget about the day's uh, anxieties and get out. And I, I actually do, that is very, very important to me. Um, I got... Um, my dog during a period where I'd been horribly burnt out and I'd done years and years of just in the office till you know absolute last minute I could um and what I just love about having a dog is that he does not care (laughs) 
Um, I have to get out in the morning. I have to get out in the afternoon. Um, and it's just a really good, um, a good way of putting everything into perspective, I think. No, not many things more in the moment than, than a spaniel. Oh, yeah. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He knows how to live. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many studies about like depression and dog ownership as yeah. well, haven't there? And it's there's a nice correlation between owning a dog and, and being a bit of a happier person. Yeah, I can see that. Um, what about you then, Zoe? You should probably mm. kind of track back a little bit and maybe mm. you can give us some context into how you found yourself in, in the space of like um, burnout and your kind of career trajectory to this point. Yeah, of course. Um, so I actually started out as a teacher, believe it or not, not too far from here in North London. Um, I taught music in a secondary school for two years after university and music was my degree so I started a very long way away from from where I've I've ended up. Um, I then took a a real uh, 180 and went into management consulting (laughs) (laughs) which I managed for I think just over two years. Um, It was I learned a lot I got a lot out of it but I don't think it was the kind of thing that I could have I could have done. How, for a career. how did that decision come about? Um, truthfully, I couldn't see myself teaching for forty years. Um, I still maintain it's probably the hardest job I've ever done, actually. Um, and what I was doing was limited to such a small, um, an incredible group of young people, but a small group of young people. Um, and I think I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to have a bigger impact on a larger group of people, I was going to have to go and learn some other skills um, before I could do that. So that's what that's what took me out. It's kind of nice. One good thing about being like our generation or younger is you can have so many different careers in your lifetime, I right? Um, which is which is something that you know you always hear about. Oh, we didn't get the houses that the boomer generation got, and this, that, and the others. But like, there's a lot of advantages to being there, yeah. and the fact that you can you know have have numerous careers and, and give context to each of them. It's really, really cool. It's actually so true. Yeah, mm. I hadn't thought of that. Totally. So you've had a few careers since Yeah, then. so after that, um, I actually went into tech and startups at that point. So um, my first job out of consulting um, was with our mutual friend, George Burgess. Um, <laughs> he was running an ed tech startup um, at the time which for me was a perfect blend um, of what I've been doing in education um, and then a lot of the business stuff I've been doing. Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely love that period. Um, it was brilliant. I then went and worked at Uber um, in the UK after that um, and then went on actually to run a travel tech company in Amsterdam, all places. Um that um, we actually ended up selling in the end. So I've kind of had the the broad spread of startup uh, experiences, probably. And earlier you mentioned around the time you got the dog, yeah. you were particularly burnt out. Which where does that fall? Unsurprisingly, that was after selling the company. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a real um, whirlwind of an experience. So I. I wasn't the founder of the company, but I was brought in um, as CEO much later on. Um, and there were lots of challenges. Um, it was a very fraught experience in some ways, but also um, one you know where I took away so, so much. And um, 
but it was exhausting. I mean, I, th- I think I'd been close to burnout a few times before um, in my career. I was used to working quite hard. Um, I, I liked working quite hard. Um, and I think I always had the confidence that whenever I'd got to that point, I was able to rein it in, um, calm things down a bit um, and re-energise. And that experience, um, it wasn't just the amount of work, it was the uncertainty, it was the um, feeling of just not always having the resources I needed, Um, it was, yeah, I've never experienced exhaustion like that, and I kind of managed to keep the the energy up to, to, to get there. Um, as did obviously my my colleagues who were working alongside me. Um, we were caught all in a similar boat. Um, but yeah, after after the sale, just absolute exhaustion of which I've I've never known. Um, and it was a real lesson because I don't think I knew that existed. I think I'd worked or maybe seen people burn out before and never really fully understood it. Um, and it was actually at that point. Um, where um, my friends Jamie and Steph, who are now also my co-founders, we started obviously talking, we were talking about what was going on in our lives, but actually looking into burnout in a bit more depth. Um, I actually, I didn't mention it, but I actually did a master's in organisational behaviour, so organisational psychology, um, back in the day now. Um, And we started to kind of, dig into quite a lot of that stuff again I think burnout something that we is spoken about so much um, and I was I was also um, guilty of that but I definitely didn't really understand what it was what caused it how we can actually think about trying to prevent it and that's when we got all of our different experiences together the three of us dug into the academic research Um, and actually started to formulate what a true burnout prevention solution could look like for organisations, and that was the birth of Amber. (laughs) Did had Steph and Jamie gone through similar experiences? Yeah, I think it's probably to to varying degrees. Um, They were both at Uber slightly longer than I was, and that was quite an intense place to work, no doubt. Um, I don't know if they'd ever quite got to the stage that I had, but yeah, certainly we'd all experienced it. And we'd all also had the quite confronting experience of having people who'd worked in our teams who'd burnt out. And I would say that actually maybe possibly more than our own personal experiences was the thing that really invited us to have a, a really hard look at where this was coming from. We all like to think of ourselves as quite conscientious, caring managers. And yeah, that was still happening. Um, so, yeah. Uh, when you say burnout, mm. like I'm sure a lot of people have a different understanding or appreciation yeah. of what that is with probably varying levels of kind of sympathy. Uh, yeah. what, what, how, how would you define it? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll actually use the WHO definition. Please do. Because it's probably much better than mine. Um, So it's a syndrome that results from unmanaged chronic workplace stress. Two key words there being chronic. So you can't burn out because you've worked hard for a week or, you know, you've worked a late night before a deadline. It's um, 
extreme levels of workplace stress over a significant period of time. Um, And the second is workplace. So according to the WHO, you can't burn out from anything but work stresses, which is quite an interesting one, because I think um, culturally we've started to use the word burnout quite broadly, um, but the official definition is is work only. Um, And there are kind of three aspects to to burnouts. The first is you'll be exhausted, you'll be um, struggling with motivation, um, you might find it very difficult to complete tasks which previously were, you know, super easy. You would think nothing of. The second is cynicism. So you might forget why you ever cared about your job in the first place. You might start to be quite cynical about others' motivations um, at work. You might get quite snappy with colleagues. Um, and the third is reduced efficacy at work. So not only are you likely to get less done, partly as a result of your exhaustion, but you'll also actually um, lose a lot of professional confidence. Um, so um, you may not feel good at all about um, how you're working in your current job, but also professionally, um, the whole of your professional experience. So um, that's how the WHO defines it. It's pretty specific. It is quite specific, yeah. Very good. I was uh, called onto a podcast recently to be a burnout expert and they asked me that question i waffled for (laughs) absolutely nothing of value so i'll I'll send you put you forward next time i get that what it was the first time in your life you'd experienced workplace burnout when you when you had at the back end of selling that company i think truly yeah yeah yeah. did it shock you how real it was yeah absolutely 100 percent i i genuinely didn't know that that was i've always been lucky that i'm quite healthy happy person I didn't know that I could get to that stage from overwork how long how long did that last for um I was lucky enough to not have to get another job immediately after but I would say there was probably a couple of months where I was in full-on recuperation mode like I don't think I could have worked during that period it's pretty intense yeah Yeah. it is and obviously that's coming from a place of real privilege for a lot of people they don't have that they would not be able to do that so yeah, it's definitely, it's real. And it's associated with like, it's really depressing actually when you look into it. It's associated with pretty much every negative health outcome mm-hmm. out there, um, both physical and mental. Um, and it's obviously also terrible for the organisation, which I'm sure we can get into. Yeah, yeah. but before we go completely deep yeah. into that, what, how was the rest of the organisation? Because obviously you had a particularly unique set of stresses mm. as the CEO, but presumably a lot of that reverberated around the company? Oh, 100%. I think it was really, really difficult for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when leadership is struggling, actually one of the the most significant predictors of an employee burning out is their direct manager experiencing burnout. So 100%, it was difficult for the entire team, absolutely. And I think another good lesson for why you need to look after yourself as, as best as you can as a manager and, and leader because of the impact that it has on those that you work with. So how, how did the three of you go from sharing these experiences, looking at the research, to, to where you are now? Yeah. Um, it started out genuinely as almost a bit of a joke. So um, The best businesses do. Yeah, sure. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Um, we So with both Jamie and Steph, I'd kind of joked for years that one day we'd set up a company together. 
Um, but we never had an idea. It was never the right time. It just didn't really feel like it was ever going to happen. Um, and then I had a bit of time on my hands in this during this period. Um, and yeah, we just started to play around with some ideas still, I mean, incredibly casually. Um, and then one day me and Steph were, were out for dinner with a couple of friends and I think we may have had a couple of glasses of wine. And I can't remember who actually said it in the end, um, but one of us said to the other, you know, that I'm not joking. Like, I, I actually think we should do this. That's a great tipsy conversation. When someone's <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know, I've had a couple of drinks, but exactly. I'm deadly serious. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then uh, we kind of told Jamie, I think literally like the next day. And that's when we were like, okay, let's, let's try and do this. So how, how do you, because, you know, it's a, I imagine a complex problem to start with, but an yeah. even more complex problem the more you get into it. So how, yeah. how do you and did you address this? Yeah. So the first thing that we were quite clear on um, from our own experiences, but also from a lot of the research, is the way that um, a lot of the kind of wellness products out there target burnout is through stress management that is totally legitimate it's something we need um you know i've i meditate i've done therapy all of that amazing stuff is so so useful for us but actually that's only half of the picture and the first part of that picture is the workplace stress and the origins of workplace stress in the first place and actually, when you look into it, it's really well documented in the ac- academic research about what actually causes chronic stress. But there's pretty much no reflection of that in the current solutions that organisations can use to try and prevent burnout. So that was our um, one thing that we were really clear on from the beginning was that we were preventative and actually focused on the organisational root causes rather than the individual level stress management side of things that's the first part okay okay yeah (laughs) there's a lot more to come um so um basically the causes of burnout are the causes of chronic stress because chronic stress when it's unmanaged over a long period of time is what results in workplace burnout and um there's fairly good consensus around what characteristics of our jobs and the organizations that we work in will actually lead to chronic stress um the one big thing that truthfully probably came as a bit of surprise to me but is one of the i think most common myths around burnout is that it's just because you're working too hard and actually Um, if an organization has high standards or a lot of work that's probably just a kind of inevitable consequence of that and that's just going to happen whereas actually workload is only a really small part of burnout risk it's perfectly possible for people to work you know really focusedly really stretching themselves but with all of the other characteristics of their job um, in a good place such that they will actually never never burn out so that was one of the really really interesting things um, so then we looked for a way basically where we could 
give managers and leaders a really good set of warnings for what was wrong in their organisation that they could fix to improve well-being, reduce chronic stress, have happier, healthy uh, employees. It's a cliche, but it's true. Um, and ultimately, um, not only do well for the people that work for them, but also ultimately have a more productive workforce that will actually save the many, many costs that come along when an employee does burn out. Yeah, I was on your website today and I was looking at some of the statistics and it's very uh, impressive in terms of like the increased productivity yeah. if, you can, if you can avoid all that. Is that something that you find quite a hard sell to companies as you as a preventative measure? Because most people wait for something to break before they fix it, right? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think it, it entirely depends on the organisation you're speaking to. I think those that are just culturally more bought into the problem, so, um, you know, tech, for example, tends to be perhaps a little bit more progressive, um, at least on the surface of things, potentially, um, and many will have used well-being and wellness solutions internally before. Um, that's a much easier sell um, because they've often seen the impact of perhaps solutions that might be a bit of a sticking plaster or maybe people don't use that much. Um, and whilst it's really nice for them to have that, um, it might not be solving the fundamental problem. And if an organisation does have a severe stress and burnout problem, it's, it's really difficult for them. Um, they'll have people leaving here, there and everywhere. Um, they'll have um, people going off sick, not only directly on stress or burnout, but um, illness as well, um, as we said, is, is very highly linked to burnout. But also you'll get a lot of people who are just really tired and probably working at you know 60 or 70 percent of the capacity that they were when they joined the organization if um, that right if that yeah like i think everyone can relate to they work in the company and as soon as it starts to go sour yeah. like it's incredible how 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 quickly like groups of people will not down tools but like yeah. either consciously or subconsciously like certainly that output um exactly. massive increases i was just gonna ask what if if someone's listening to this and they they think they're maybe about to experience like burnout what, what should they do then well, clearly the, the correct answer would be i'll oh, take the preventative measures six months ago yeah. six weeks ago whatever but if someone's if someone hasn't got to that point and they think oh my god i've never felt like this before at work like it feels like everything's crashing down what, what would you advise yeah so i'm always really careful about answering questions like this um, because if someone is experiencing burnout or you know any other mental health um, issue where they're starting to feel really um, in a difficult place, the first thing is obviously to, to speak to someone. Mm -hmm. um, I am, um, despite my master's, not a therapist um, and feel, I guess, quite limited about what I can advise an individual. Um, but certainly an organisation can take a huge amount of preventative action at this point. And one of the things that we actually, one of the kind of early learnings we had was that, sadly, for an individual, actually, they only have quite limited power. Um, the vast majority of our burnout risk is about our workplace context. So um, if you're in that place and you can, and, um, 
you know, I would suggest either speaking to your manager or um, if not, maybe looking for a different different job if you can. Um, because so much of it, and again, we probably all, we've probably all been in these periods at some point during our careers, um, a lot of it is down to the organisation and the context that the organisation is in. So if you've already tried to to speak to your manager and and make it be known and, and nothing's happening, um, if you can switch up your organisational context, that's probably the number one thing. And in terms of how you know Amber and yourself goes mm. about detecting and you know helping companies, mm. I guess it's a almost a data analysis problem. Like what what data are you looking at? How are you? How are you analysing these companies? Yeah, totally. So um, we are basically an organisational data company, actually, um, that aims to solve the problem of chronic stress and burnout. Um, So one of the um, key things that an organisation can do um, to prevent burnout is to really understand the drivers in the organisation. And that sounds pretty obvious and I guess it is Um, if you're a manager or a leader you want to really understand what the um, causes of stress are in the organization but actually um, it is surprisingly difficult as a manager particularly in a hybrid world to have a very comprehensive and deep picture of the experience of your um, of your team's Um, so if as a manager, actually, you can see that, for example, the marketing team, um, is got, you know, is experiencing very, very poor time boundaries, meaning they'll be routinely interrupted in the evenings, the weekends, their holidays. Um, that's a real red flag or an amber flag, as we like to say, um, that something needs to be looked into. The manager hopefully is in the position to actually intervene at that point and ensure that, all employees have got really strong time boundaries. So the ideal um, for work to reduce chronic stress is to be plugged in when we're at work and then really unplugged when we're not. Um, Obviously, there's the odd exception, but um, it's one of the key drivers of burnout over time is not being able to reliably switch off at any point outside of work. And do you think that's causation or correlation the way that our people burning out because they're not unplugging outside of work hours or are more burnt out people less likely to unplug outside of work hours? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know data on the second. It's certainly possible. If you've got reduced efficacy at work, it might take you a bit longer um, to do your your kind of daily tasks. But um, there has been clear causation um, researched and evidenced that um, over time, um, out-of-work communications is a, is a high-risk factor for burnout. It's a really interesting one, though. Well, yeah. so, sorry, there you go. Well, yeah, so, so are, you, are you effectively kind of mapping the company and like where you think everyone is, different departments, different people, in terms of burnout? Is, is that how it looks? Uh, part of it. So the first thing to say is that all of the data that Amber uses is anonymized and aggregated. So a manager can never see an individual's scores unless they want um, their manager to see them. And that's critically important. Um, and ju- just on that, is that the individual kind of self-assessing themselves or is that so is there any mm. sort of input from the individual about right, how you're feeling, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. There, there can be actually, um, not always. It depends on the organisation and the team. 
Um, but there is an opt-in option for any individual who basically wants to wave that flag and say, yo, have a look. Um, not all, you know, is going well. Um, but what we actually do is we show um, managers and leaders um, data along the five risk factors for chronic stress and burnout on an organisation level, organisational level. So that's um, unsustainable workloads. Um, it's not just about actually working hard, as we said before, but do you have the resources to complete your work? Have you had sufficient training to do your work or are you really struggling maybe on that side of things? Um, are you in meetings all the time? So you actually have no time to do deep work. I'm sure we can relate to, to that. Um, then we've got time boundaries, which is what we discussed around being able to reliably switch off. So for the most part, do your work when you're at work. Um, obviously, you know, for some people, depending on their life and setup, maybe, for example, if they're parents of, of young kids, that's also factored in. So my co-founder, for example, Jamie, has got um, a, a nearly two-year-old and he will do the kind of classic parent thing of probably shutting the laptop at, at five o'clock but then logging late into the evening and actually Amber knows that and can actually track along um, those lines. Then we've got um, relationships at work. This is a really interesting one and I don't think it's something that we think about enough actually in relation to burnout um, and it works in both directions. So if we've got really strong supportive relationships at work where for example we definitely have a one-to-one -one with our manager every week um, which Amber can, for example, check for. Um, we report that we feel comfortable sharing with our team when we're stressed or struggling. Um, that's going to protect us from burnout. If, on the other hand, we're maybe very isolated, we're mainly working by ourselves with very, very little connection or support, that's going to be driving burnout risk, um, as is conflict or any kind of rude or aggressive behavior at work um what i found especially interesting about that one is it's not only being on the receiving end it's also witnessing it so if there are some quite difficult dysfunctional team dynamics or there's a culture of a lack of respect and politeness that's actually gonna um gonna really drive burnout risk then finally, we've got recognition, so being um, rewarded both structurally and interpersonally for your work. Um, it can be as simple as, you know, your boss saying thank you every time you know, they send you over something, or it can be something, yeah, much more kind of organisation, organisational. And then finally, um, a feeling of control and autonomy over your work. So if priorities are changing um, every hour or so, you have no say in how anything's done, maybe you're being micromanaged, um, that's going to be a real driver. And conversely, if you feel a lot of ownership over your work and you can really dictate how you do your tasks to, to achieve the required results, that's going to really protect you against burnout. So um, that was very long-winded. But those <laughs> are the, the five burnout risk factors that um, Amber scans data for, which is both objective data and self-reported data from individuals. Um, and will then um, alert um, and draw managers and leaders' attention to areas that are driving that risk so they can intervene. And how, because I mean, I, 
agree with all of that, but definitely the people one. Like yeah. any time I've seen any issues, which I've seen lots of previous startup I worked for, culture went down the pan. Yeah, and as soon as that happens, it's just people issues. Like, yes. you know, as you say, going both ways. You yeah. Know, kind of bosses unhappy with the people yeah. working with them, people working with them unhappy with the bosses. Uh, and so how, how, how do you go about tracking that? Is that uh, self-police or is that scanned or a bit of both? So relationships, for obvious reasons, tends to be um, more self-reported. Um, but actually, it's really interesting stuff that, that actually shows up in, in some of the data um, that Amber can see. So the managerial one-to-ones was a really interesting one because we actually didn't have that in the initial version of the product. Um, and then you start to look for correlations between the self-reported data. So, for example, on this one, which is feeling supported by your immediate line manager, unsurprisingly, having that regular connection um, with a line manager in the in the form of yeah a meeting once a week um, is incredibly strongly correlated with someone self-reporting that. So then you can start to proxy in some of these more objective data points um, that originated from um, the self-reported data. And one of the like quite um, special things about combining these two sorts of data is that um, it's actually been shown that people who are on the edge of burnout are the least likely to fill in their pulse surveys. <laughs> so if you're only relying on self-reported data, um, first of all, there can be a lot of noise there that can kind of obscure some of the organisational um, drivers. But also, you're actually quite likely to miss a huge swathe of your employees who might really be struggling. And you're just... There's a complete data gap there. So that's one of the kind of magic things about being able to complement objective and subjective data together. And I guess that data gap is in itself data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. That, yeah. So the people not filling out the surveys are probably there. Should be an alarm bell. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, just practically then. So if yeah. a company's got 100 employees mm. and they use Amber services, yeah. does each one of those employees every week get like a, a survey that they have to tick like how content they are, one to 10, or how does it work on a, like, a practical level? Yeah, sure. So um, most companies use objective and subjective data. Some actually only use one or the other. So that slightly um, varies the employee experience. But the typical employee experience would be you get one question every morning delivered either through Slack or Microsoft Teams, depending which one you're on. Um, And the question tracks back to one of those five risk factors. So it tends to be actually much less about how you're feeling. um, And it tends to be much more about, um, yeah, are you, did you feel able um, over the last month to share when you were stressed or when you were struggling with your team, as an example. And that tracks back to relationships. Um, we also, um, still for most data points, um, even when we rely on the objective data, because it tells us quite a lot, for example, the number of hours that someone's in a meeting each week uh, or in meetings each week, um, Amber can see. Um, but we actually still um, request that information and um, an individual's um, perception of it. Because if, for example, you're in a sales team and you're doing 25, 30 hours of meetings a week, maybe that's just about right, actually. Um, And you might report that that was absolutely fine um, for you that week. If you are an engineer, that's probably not what you want to be doing. 
Um, so what we use the subjective data for in that sense is basically to train the model and train the product so that over time it decreases our reliance um, on self-reported data, although we'll probably still always continue some element of it. I think it's really important for engagement and for people to understand um, the product. Um, but actually means that then Amber understands, for example, that um, a sales team might have a much lower sensitivity to the number of hours they're in versus, for example, an engineering team. You're talking there about training the model. Uh, mm. I mean, you know, it's, I imagine there are levels and levels and levels deeper you can go yeah. as you get into it. Like, where do you where do you see all this going? As much as you can share, I guess. Yeah. No. Of course. Um, it's a really under um, underused area. Organizational data. Um, I think for some really um, obvious reasons, actually. Um, I think that people have often been worried about using this data um, because of concerns around how employees might feel about it or about data and privacy. And actually, that was something that we built on right from the beginning. So the aggregation, anonymization, sort of A words. Um, And also giving employees... um, a real experience of Amber of their own right. So they can actually look through all of their data. They can look through their subjective and their um, objective data. It's a live um, tool, and we actually have really high engagement with that. So that's been really important. So I think the um, there's so much opportunity with it for many other organisational problems. So things like um, harassment, things like bullying, um, diversity and inclusion. There's so much that data can help um, with on in those problems. And um, definitely our long-term vision for Amber <coughs> is that we're addressing a broad range of organisational problems using this um, really, really rich data. I, I guess the hardest problem with that data is the collection, you know, because mm. it's there, but not many people have access to it. So mm. as you say, by getting all the data from this then puts you in quite a unique position to go out and solve all of this. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of organisations obviously don't even kind of think about it um, because you do kind of need everything in the same place. You need all of your um, stack of software and, you know, you need all of that um, aggregated. So totally, yeah. How, how has it changed how you run Amber? Um, my, my knowledge of... <clears throat> Yeah, I guess, I guess what, what kind of reflections do you, do you pull into how I'm sure you have a fantastic culture but, but what lessons have you, have you oh, taken yeah. I guess great question because we are so so aware you must also have this Hector but so so aware of the potential hypocrisy of running a burnout prevention company and then having any kind of burnout culture <laughs> or indeed burning yourself out um, so it's something we're super super intentional about um, I think so much has come from that research that we did that, you know, even having the organisational behaviour background that I had and even, you know, I think before we started looking into it, having been through burnout, I just didn't know so much of it. So, um, yeah, like that relationship point, for example, I'd, it makes total sense when I now look back on my experiences, but um, that's something that we're now really actively able to to take into the organization um 
we're also incredibly lucky that we are all really aligned in the vision, very, very conscious about living the values that we're we're preaching. Um, so we are quite strict um, about things. Um, and, you know, when we're on holiday, we, we really try not to work. We really, really try and stick within our, our hours. Um, we make a really active effort. And it can sometimes be tempting not to do this stuff, right, when you're a startup. Um, because there's just always so many things to be doing. But making an effort to really, really um, prioritise recognition, boosting autonomy in the team, investing in those relationships um, internally. Um, so yeah, we, we, and we also track our Amber scores. So. <laughs> I know Hector loves the, the aftermath of the industrial revolution. So like, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've read books on this, how after the industrial revolution, the amount of hours people worked a week just nosedives basically. And then it's continued to drop down until like the year 2000 where it basically plateaued. So people are working less, right? They're working less than they did a hundred years ago. They're working less than they did 200 years ago. But I don't know the statistics on burnout, but presu- I don't know, is that going, has it gone up recently? Or like, do, do you think that's... I guess, why is burnout such a problem now when we're working, at least in theory, we're working less hours? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I find this stuff so interesting as well. I went into a real um, like Google hole looking at hunter-gatherers, um, basically like their working patterns, <laughs> uh, to kind of get a sense of what's natural for us, actually which uh, turns out is about four to five hours a day. That's a side point. Um, so burnout has gone up recently. So since 2020, it's gone up by about a third. Um, the drivers for that, I think, are pretty intuitive. Um, some of it was short term. So lots of companies were battling a lot of uncertainty, a real you know, lack of control, um, for us in our works, but also the primary thing, obviously, being um, the detachment from physical place. We almost need a new uh, word for workplace. Um, I've been thinking recently because it doesn't quite capture it. We need to not yeah. we work over the world. Deleted from the dictionary. That one. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's basically you know the blurring of boundaries between home and work, but also some of that reduced visibility that managers can have. Um, If you're sat at a desk with your team five days a week, you've usually got a pretty good sense of maybe who's putting in extra hours, who was a little bit irritable yesterday, who um, has been getting a lot of requests from maybe other teams. Um, But in a hybrid world, that's very, very much reduced. And it's much more difficult for um, leaders to, um, to really understand the dynamics and actually step in when needed. Um, so I think some of that blurred blurred boundaries is is one of the key drivers there. You know, even in two thousands, um, we'd be in the office and then home home at night, leaving everything behind us. You know, even if we wanted to, we probably wouldn't be able to to work um, at home. Um, but it's a very interesting one. I'm going to think more on it. Um, and I guess re- on that point, like reduced empathy as well. For the same reason, yeah. right? Like, it's if someone's sitting across from you, it's much easier to read the situation yeah. than if you're just exchanging Slack messages with them. Totally. You know, yeah. if they're slightly short with you because they're looking after their kid or something, you think, "What have I done? Have I upset them?" You know. Yeah. And I think uh, that has gone 
from a lot of how we work. Mm. It's much harder to develop empathy with someone over Zoom yeah. than it is face-to-face. Yeah, 100%. And so much of that community and the supportive relationships that we had um, in the workplace, even if it's twice, you know, two days a week, it's so much reduced versus what we would historically um, have had. And in terms of the future, um, we kind of touched on this very briefly, but do you see like all, I don't know, small, medium, big size companies having Amber or a version of Amber like integrated within their culture in the next, you know, decade and, or 50 years to come? Like, how do, you, how do you see that going? Or do you think there'll, there'll continue to be resistance to it? Or do some companies not need it? Like, how do you see it going? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's what we, what we see. Um, and actually increasingly, um, if not Amber, there are kind of other versions of similar techniques which are kind of starting to pop up now. Um, I don't think it's the case that some organisations don't need it. Um, it's a preventative approach. So actually, even if um, you have the strongest um, culture in the world, actually you need to be keeping an eye on things, especially um, in a di- yeah, dispersed teams, which increasingly we are, hybrid teams, which we increasingly are. Um, so absolutely, um, I don't think it will be a decade. I think it will be sooner than that, actually, um, that um, this will be very, very commonplace. And once you get, I guess, once you get into a company, there's obviously people in that company who completely support the product. Once the data comes up that mm. this half of the company is burnt out, whatever it might be, or the, the whole company, is there still pushback internally? Or is it do all the kind of naysayers? I'm not sure how much visibility you have into that with your customers, but are, yeah. are, there, are there still kind of people internally who don't buy it? It's really interesting. Um, it's the power of data that basically counters that it's still there I think especially as um, a manager an immediate team manager um, it can be a difficult realization um, to maybe uh, yeah learn that you didn't fully understand maybe some of the pressures on your team um, or that your team are are really struggling Um, and we have definitely seen a couple of examples of that but actually then when you're able to walk someone through all of the layers of data there so not just maybe you know poor there was one specific example I can think of where a team was showing very very poor time boundaries um and the manager was like I just don't get it like I don't I'm not experiencing that I'm not seeing it I don't know where that's coming from and then we are actually able to kind of dig down and, and show them that it was predominantly around weekend work and a lot of the team were quite new, um, quite early on in their careers. They hadn't had much training, maybe in the specific area that they were working on. And actually, they were just having to work at the weekend to keep up with what they were needing to do. And without that layered data, that just never would have been surfaced. Um, and without at least um, a signal to look into that, that question also never would have been asked internally. Um, so yeah, there's, I think there's always going to be, um, especially when a product is new to then see the data and be like, wow, I had no idea of that. But that is why data is so powerful because, you know, there's no arguing against it. And do you get, obviously 
people are kind of worried anyway about like Big Brother and like everyone, mm. you know, my mobile phone's listening to me and like, you know, my computer mm. knows everything and my history and stuff like that. Do you get any kickback on people being like, oh, I've got to give more data to some, I know it's anonymous and stuff, mm. but you yeah. know, there's a mistrust there like instinctively these days, I think. So do you get any kickback from people being like, why I don't want to give, I don't want to, you know, say exactly how I'm feeling yeah. to, to this um, automated system, which is to them. Yeah, um, it's... It's something that we were so conscious about right from the start. And we went to such great lengths to ensure that people felt real trust and security to be able to be honest. Um, And we actually have not had any kickback, which is really interesting. Um, I think, you know, obviously we're a burnout prevention solution. So managers can never see inverse data so if I'm sat around watching Netflix for 10 hours a week on my laptop no one's ever going to know that that doesn't exist within Amber it's only triggered as a score when it actually goes into um, a risky territory around any of these risk factors Um, they're all indexed so again there's no real data there you can actually only see um, scores in relation to it's a risk score so basically out of five Um, so it's really, really carefully designed and, and it has to be for exactly that reason. Um, but equally, I also think people um, are you know, fully aware that data can be really helpful, especially in relation to something like this, and that this data actually already exists for organisations. So if an organisation wanted to, it would be difficult because they'd have to go to all the different platforms and you know, make their own surveys, etc. But all of this data would actually already be avail- available to them if they wanted to. Um, so there are no new new kind of elements or data points there, which I think people, um, people really kind of get. Um, but it's really important and it's something that we're so fully committed to. Because if people don't feel, you know, trust mm. and security, there's no chance that the product can work. So, yeah, it's really important. And as the model gets more powerful, mm. and, you know, you get more companies, more data. Yeah. Do, do you see it, you know, where you're collecting that data from massively increasing? So would you start looking at stuff like the tone of voice in video meetings and you know, maybe individual employees, wearable tech? Like, do, do you see it going in that direction or do you think you'll largely stay with the data collection you're doing now and just get better at interpreting it. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's room for um, more um, more integrations, like without doubt. So one of the things that we're working on at the moment is um, with some project management tools. Um, so at the moment, if someone, uh, if a company's or a team is predominantly working from a project management tool, maybe Jura or any other, or a customer service tool, um, we can't can't use that data whereas we're building those at the moment um so i think the um the focus at the moment is about broadening the types of teams that we can help so um the nhs is a huge one that um we've we'd love to build a version of the product that could really really work in a clinical setting same with education, but that does require a, a broader spread of, of integrations. Um, in terms of some of the more sensitive um, data sources, so yeah, you mentioned wearables. Um, I don't think so, truthfully. I think that it's really important for individuals to have ownership over that data. I think um, 
well, you know, there's definitely a world in which there's kind of optional um, opt-in for some of the stuff. And I know some organisations have have um, experimented with heart rate variability as an indicator of, of stress internally, but we are an organisational rather than a health company. Um, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And visions of Hector monitoring the tone of voice on everyone that works for you. Like, you're out the door if you're giving off negative vibes. But a tricky balance for sure, because yeah, some of that's like super valuable. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, pe- people don't want to be spied on. Yeah, so totally. Know, like, yeah. And the onus, like the, the whole premise basically of our product is that it puts the onus on the manager and the organisation, which is actually what the research shows. Um, so individuals should never be kind of, you know, worrying about if, if I'm seeming too stressed or, um, because that's first of all, not what the product surfaces, but secondly, not, you know, not what basic, not what it can do. It's all about showing, um, on a team and organizational level, what can be corrected and improved rather than shifting any of that focus responsibility onto the individual and I think when you start to get into more of those data sources that's where that that can be quite diluted I think yeah and I I guess it is really useful because because there is a real narrative now that if someone on the team is burnt out it's kind of their fault almost 100 as you say like it always does come from yeah the manager really doesn't it so I think highlighting that as you say the data speaks so that that's super powerful and how about you are you still running this company in 20 years or is it a problem you're going to go in solve in the next five and and move on to the next thing i i love uh this job um i feel so incredibly lucky i feel like the stars really aligned to be doing this with two of the best people i've ever worked with who also happen to be really good friends about something that we care so deeply about both kind of on a personal level, but also on more of a societal um, level. Um, so, yeah, 20 years, fingers crossed. Nice. And did you bring your Spaniel to work? Yeah, Thursdays. He's in there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I mean, the fireworks are crackling uh, outside, so it might be a nice time to, to kind of wrap up. Um, yeah, why don't you tell um, everyone... Uh, you know the, the kind of the service you offer the, the best place to find you uh, if, if a company is interested in, in using Amber yeah of course so we're AMBR um, no E um, that was taken was it it was I mean AMBR was also taken in a different form but <laughs> you have to get inventive um, we are Amber and we are a burnout prevention company that focuses on the organisational root causes of chronic stress and burnout using data Um, we can work on team sizes from pretty much anything, um, from 10 people, um, up to 10,000 plus. So there really is no limitation. Um, and we cater for almost every tech stack. So, um, do have a look, find us online and yeah, get in touch if you want to chat. Lovely. Love it. Well, I hope you do get in the NHS. And if anyone from there yeah. is listening, then, uh, <laughs> please get in touch with Zoe. But such a joy to have you on. Amazing. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you Thanks both so well. much. A pleasure. Does your brain ever go like this? <laughs>